So I'm going to do what's best for me. Uh, I'm going to do what makes me happy. Uh, Those are two selfish, selfish statements uh, regarding your own personal choices. Uh, Both of those statements reveal uh, the depth and the reality of our sinful human condition. By nature, uh, we like to make choices that are best for ourselves. Uh, My oldest son is eight. I tell him all the time, I say, Easton, life is all about the choices you make. Uh, Choices get you everywhere in life. Big choices on what you're going to be when you grow up. He thinks he's going to be in the NBA. I tell him you're going to be 5'9". Make a different choice. Uh, Easton, you're going to make a choice one day on who you marry. That could be either great or a hot mess. Uh, Easton, you're going to make choices on what type of life you're going to have. Uh, We make big choices like that. We make smaller choices. You sitting in that chair today is a smaller choice. A lot of pastors like to remind people on Saturdays uh, that coming to church on a Sunday is a Saturday night decision. It was a choice for you to get up, get dressed, and be here this morning. Uh, In our text this morning that we read together so beautifully, uh, we're going to see that there's two choices that you make with Jesus Christ. Two choices. You're either going to run from him or you're going to rest in him. And the big idea this morning is this. Your decision on what to do with Jesus Christ has eternal consequences. Uh, The choices that we make in our day-to-day life, uh, those all have consequences. Those carry weight in this life. But your choice about Jesus carries weight for all of eternity, which is a lot longer than your life here on earth. So in our 11 verses that we read together this morning to finish Matthew 11, uh, we're going to first look at how you can run from Jesus And then we're going to see Jesus' invitation to come run to him and rest in him. So I know we already read this scripture and we prayed, uh, but if you have your Bibles, we have a lot to cover this morning. We're going to get started in Matthew chapter 11. So your decision on what to do with Jesus Christ has eternal consequences. Uh, So Matthew 11, starting in verse 20, Matthew tells us this. He says, Then he proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Uh, So the he here is Jesus. And that word denounce for all of us non-English majors can better be interpreted as like he reprimanded. Uh, Jesus proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done. Uh, remember, this comes off the heels of our text last week at the end of cha- or in the middle of chapter 11, where Jesus says, well, to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children, we played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't mourn. Here, Jesus has been doing miracle after miracle after miracle in the past several chapters of Matthew. For these people in real time, in the last several days and months, he's been doing miracles, but yet the response of the people is one that clearly Jesus isn't super impressed by. So therefore, he proceeds to denounce the towns. We'll look at three towns in particular in our time this morning, and we'll see that they are announced because they saw Jesus' miracles, or they saw the workings of Jesus, and they did not repent. Uh, Remember, Jesus is the one who came and said, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven is here. That should be met in repentance. And what we're about to see in the first couple verses is that when the works of God are met with a lack of repentance, denunciation happens. 
Uh, your decision on what to do with Jesus Christ has eternal consequences. You either run away from him or you rest in him. Uh, so let's look at the towns. How do they run from him? Uh, verse 21, the first two towns, Jesus says this. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. So Jesus has done all of his ministry so far in one location. He's in the Roman province in the region of Palestine called Galilee. And in Galilee, you had a bunch of different towns or villages, and these are two of them. Uh, this is a helpful graph. I get confused by all the regions in the Bible, so it's just helpful to you. Looks like the Target logo, so all the women are going to go spend like $300 this afternoon. Uh, but overall, you have the Roman Empire. Within the Roman Empire, you have Galilee. And then within Galilee, you have little towns. They're not cities, they're towns. Uh, two of those towns are Chorazin and Bethsaida. Uh, Jesus is saying, woe to you. And just so you know, when Jesus pronounces a woe upon you, not a good thing. He says, if the miracles that were done in your towns had instead been done in Tyre and Sidon, the people of Tyre and Sidon would have repented in sackcloth and ashes a long time ago. So Tyre and Sidon were two ancient cities that were no longer there when Jesus says this. They were two ancient cities in the Old Testament that were not just enemies of God, they were enemies of God's people. Uh, if you read books like Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Amos, Old Testament prophecies, there's strong prophecies against Tyre and Sidon about their ignorance and their opposition to the things that God was doing. Uh, Tyre and Sidon were anti-God cities, cities that God, through his prophets, pronounced judgment on. Uh, Jesus tells Chorazin and Bethsaida, he says, hey, you remember Tyre and Sidon? If they would have seen me heal the lepers... If they would have seen me raise that little girl to life, if they would have seen me heal the blind, they would have seen that and they would have repented a long time ago. He goes on to say in verse 22, he says, but I tell you it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. It's really interesting that Jesus says that, right? It's interesting that Jesus knows what the outcome would have been for Tyre and Sidon had they seen his ministry with their own two eyes. We'll get that, to, get that in a second, but now he addresses the third town in verse 23. He says, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you'll be exalted down to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So same thing with Capernaum. At least if you've been here for about a year, you know what Capernaum is. You're a little familiar with Capernaum. Uh, it's where Jesus made his home. He lived in Capernaum. So the people didn't just like see Jesus' miracles. They could have lived next door to him. He says, will you automatically be exalted to heaven just because you know who I am? No. It's actually the opposite. You're going to be sent down to Hades. Hades was a place that the Jewish people would have related to eternal punishment. This verse just shows that just simply having familiarity with Jesus, being able to spit out a couple scriptures or tell everybody what he did, that does nothing for you. He compares Capernaum to Sodom, another Old Testament city completely destroyed by God for its absolute wickedness. And if you've not read about Sodom and Gomorrah, it was wickedness. Uh, we don't have time to cover it this morning. Go home and read Genesis 19. 
He says the same thing to Capernaum that he says to Chorazin and Bethsaida. It will be more tolerable for them, the land of the wicked, the lands that have been destroyed, than it will be for you on the day of judgment. Again, your decision on what to do with Jesus Christ has eternal consequences. Uh, We see that even though they saw Jesus Christ in the flesh, they did not respond to Jesus Christ as one should. Instead, they ran from him. And how did they run from him? I think by choosing to ignore him. Jesus came teaching in a totally different way. Jesus came healing people in a way that nobody else could. Matthew sets that up for us in chapters 5 through 7, shows that Jesus taught with a different level of authority. In Matthew 8 and 9, he shows that Jesus healed with a completely different level of authority. And the people of Chorazin, the people of Bethsaida, the people of Capernaum, they all witness these things. They hear these things. And these weren't cities the size of Phoenix. Uh, These were small towns with unique interactions to Jesus Christ, but yet what did they do? They chose to ignore him. And because they chose to ignore him, Jesus is saying there's dangerous consequences to that. It's much like today. Society today is really no different than it was when Jesus was saying these things. Uh, People ignore Jesus all the time. Uh, Christians and non-Christians alike choose to ignore Jesus. Uh, Christians ignore Jesus by not being fully obedient to him, by not allowing him full access into our lives, but non-Christians ignore him because they simply make the choice to never see Jesus for who he really is. Uh, In Romans 1, Paul kind of hits on this. He talks about how what can be known about God is plain to all people because God has revealed himself to all people. That means for us that nobody in this room today has any sort of excuse that they can't see God. Uh, Paul says that even though people may know God, they do not glorify him. They do not give thanks to him. Instead, what do they do? They ignore him. They run from him. Paul tells us that their foolish hearts were darkened. Eternal consequence comes when you run from God. In these four verses, Jesus says it twice. He tells all three of these cities it's going to be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the cities of wickedness than it will be for you. That same warning applies to us this morning. All of us in this room will one day die. That's true of everybody in here. And when you die, you will stand in front of the king of the universe and you'll be judged for every decision you made here on this earth. You can clearly see through the text this morning that the judgment that you will receive in the day of the Lord will take into account the opportunity you were given when you were here on earth. Sodom and Tyre and Sidon, they never saw Jesus. Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, they saw Jesus. We as 21st century Americans, where the gospel is abundantly clear, where it's clearly taught, clearly preached, to ignore that gospel as it goes forward, knowing full well you had the opportunity to accept it, those things come with consequences. So what will happen on the day of judgment? Uh, Later on in Matthew 25, which we'll get to in about the year 2027, uh, Jesus says this. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right, and the goats will go on his left. Uh, So Jesus one day will return, end times. I know a lot of you get really excited for that. But one day Jesus will return, just as the Bible taught, 
And when Jesus returns, he will sit on his throne. That is the rightful place that Jesus Christ sits on. And when Jesus Christ sits on that throne, Scripture tells us that he will gather all the nations. Now that word nations in the Greek, don't think like countries, think people. He will gather all the people before his throne. They will all be gathered before him, and then Jesus Christ on his throne will start to separate people. And he will separate them into two different camps. You're either a sheep or you're a goat. If you're a sheep, you're going to be put on the right. If you're a goat, you're going to be put on the left. And then the eternal destiny that you have inherited based on what camp you're in will be pronounced. So what is that? Verse 34 and 41 of Matthew 25. It says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will also say to those on the left, the goats, he'll say, Depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. As we sit here this morning, it's a question that you can answer. I can't answer it for you. Are you a sheep or are you a goat? When you die, are you going to be pushed to the right or are you going to be pushed to the left? Will you come to him or will you be sent away from him? Will you inherit a kingdom or will you inherit eternal fire? That decision on which camp that you're in this morning is one that you make. On the day of judgment, Scripture tells us that it won't be acceptable to sit there before the king of the universe and claim ignorance. Your decision on what you do with Jesus Christ today has eternal consequences. So those are examples of running from Christ. That's what it looks like, to run from Christ. Well, what's the opposite? What's the good news? What's the example of resting in him? Uh, Jesus begins with a little bit of a prayer. Look at verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. So how do we rest in him? What does it take to not run from him but rest in him? Notice at the beginning of Jesus' prayer, he puts God the Father in his rightful place. He says, Lord of heaven and earth, Lord over all things, the Lord that chooses to reveal what he reveals, choose to hide what he hides, and there's nothing we can say about it because he's God and we're not. Jesus tells us, he says that he's hidden things from the wise and intelligent, but yet he's revealed them to infants. So what are these things? What are those things he's either hidden or revealed? If you look at just the context of Matthew, uh, these things are the mighty works of Jesus Christ that should have pushed people to repentance and belief, but you can see, see instead they were stagnated. They chose to ignore those things. And there's a reason for that. It's because God has hidden those things from the wise and intelligent, but yet he's revealed those things to infants. Well, what does that mean? None of us in here are infants. What's the difference between the wise and intelligent and the infants? Uh, This isn't a comparison between the the smart and the dumb. You don't have to be like Mensa to get into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, This isn't a comparison between the successful and the unsuccessful. Those who have money and those don't have money. Uh, How would I compare these two? It would more be like a contrast. On the one hand, you have those who are self-sufficient, the people who like to deem themselves wise. On the other hand, you have the people who are okay with a little more dependency, the people who like to be taught. Uh, It's much like a child. If you look at a child, the younger a child is, the more dependent they are on you as a parent. But the older you get, the more ornery you get and the harder it is to really learn anything because you're very, very self-dependent. 
What Jesus is saying here is that the knowledge of God does not all at all depend on human wisdom. The knowledge of God doesn't depend on your education level. He's saying infants or little children do not rely on their own resources, so they're more open to receive revelation. This is simply a comparison between those who remain dependent on God versus the mature and self-confident adult that doesn't need God. Isn't that just backwards? That we have to run to something as adults to give us dependency? We must become more like children so we can more be like our God? Yeah, it is backwards to what the world teaches, but it's what the kingdom teaches. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are dying, but it's the power of God for those who are being saved. It takes us to be foolish in order to become wise. It comes down to the question this morning of who is ultimately in charge of your life? As you sit there today, Is God really God? Do you submit to God in all ways? Do you allow the Bible to guide you, or do you never study the Bible at all? You have no idea what it even says, so you don't really know how to be guided. Even if you're a Christian in here, and you're saying, I'm 90% on board with what Jesus would say, but there's just 10% of me where I don't really want to give that to him. I don't want to give my sexuality to him, or my money to him, or anything like that. What you can do is put yourself in the wise and intelligent camp. You know more than he does in that 10%. Think about it. For those who have everything, why would there be any need of a savior? For those who are so competent, you can get everything that you need on your own. Why do you need a God? At the end of the day, in order to realize that you need a savior, you have to realize that you need to be saved from something. I was talking to somebody the other day, and we were talking about how in the world, the world looks at Christianity or different religions in general as nothing but a a crutch for those who need dependency. If you take a deeper look, though, uh, the world is so technologically advanced. Uh, It's so technologically advanced, I could speak into my phone on AI, and it could write this entire sermon for me. That's how far away we are. We're light years ahead of the crowd that Jesus spoke to in this passage 2,000 years ago, yet we do the same exact stuff. Look at modern-day medicine. Look at modern-day technology. Try not to laugh, but look at modern-day government. Uh, Look at modern-day anything. All the things are way more advanced. All of those things were supposed to be fixes for all of our problems. Now do me a favor and walk out those doors as you leave here today and take a deep look at the world. The world's just as messy as it was 2,000 years ago. It's probably messier than it's ever been. So we're more technologically advanced and advanced in every single area, yet people all around us are still perishing. Why? It's because we continuously rely on our own wisdom and intelligence, and we never allow ourselves to be humble. This truly, in verse 25, it's a comparison. As you stand before God, are you arrogant or are you humble? You want to run from God? approach him in arrogance. You want to rest in him, approach him in humility. If you truly know who God is, there's no way you can look at the God of the universe as I'm about to explain him and stand next to him with any sort of arrogant posture. Uh, So that's the first part of how you rest in him. You humble yourself. You see yourself for who you are. You understand that God is God and you're not him. You allow him to work in your life. You allow every part of your life to fall under his lordship. You allow yourself in the good and the bad to submit your life to him in his sovereign rule and reign. 
Anything in your life that you leave here and try to control yourself is simply showing God that you are running from him in that area and you're not resting in him. So I want you all to see how Jesus allows us to get that rest. It's all through Christ. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. So this is a really key passage to understand the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Notice that Jesus said it's not the Father, but my Father, his personal Father. Jesus' relationship with God the Father is closer than anybody else's relationship with God the Father. So that has implications. Like, he knows how God really is. He has the knowledge of the Father that is not shared with anyone else. So on the flip side, how do we get to know that? Uh, He says, no one knows the Son except the Father. So they know each other more than we do. The Son, not a Son. Uh, This relates a little bit to what we're talking about. The wise and intelligent in all three of those cities, they saw Jesus as the 30-something-year-old former carpenter from Nazareth. The infants, the humble, the least of these, they saw Jesus for his rightful place, and that was the Son of God. And we see here that no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. So it's through Jesus Christ. It's only through the blood of Jesus Christ, it's only through his Holy Spirit that you could even know who God is. By running from Jesus, you're never going to know who God is. You have to be willing to receive it. And when you receive that, you receive it with humility. And this is who you receive it from. This is Jesus' invitation to you, these next three verses. Uh, I don't care if you walked in here this morning, you consider yourself a saint or a sinner. I don't care if you walked in here this morning and this is the first time you've ever heard this message or maybe you're listening to this message for the first time and it's finally the light bulbs turning on with you. Maybe you walked in here this morning, probably like most of you, you've been a Christian forever. I still want you to hear this invitation from Jesus. Verse 28, Jesus finishes this section. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Uh, It's crowd participation Sunday. Uh, So just by a show of hands, uh, how many of you in this room, uh, let's say within the past six months, uh, how many of you in this room in the last six months have at one time or another felt weary and burdened? Just go ahead and raise your hand. I'll raise my hand. Uh, I wonder if I lowered that time frame from six months to one week, how many of you would still raise your hand that you feel weary or burdened? Odds are that if you raise your hand just now, you're probably going to raise your hand if I ask you that question again in six months. Why is that? It's because life brings us trouble. It's because life brings us weariness. It's because life brings us burdens. Every single person in this service and last service raised their hand. What's Jesus' invitation to us? Come to me. All of those who are weary and burdened. Not those who are wise and sophisticated, who have everything all figured out. Not all the white knucklers, the dude in the corner who just has it all figured out, doesn't need anybody's help. The people in this room who don't need gospel-centered community, that's not who he's calling. He's saying all of those, all of you who raised your hand this morning, all of those who are weary and burdened, that you walked in this room this morning and there's a lot on your shoulders. There's a lot of pressure on your shoulders. Take an honest evaluation. Is that you this morning? What does Jesus say? He says, come to me and I will give you rest. You know what that word rest means? It means refreshment. 
I know for me, when life starts getting heavy, I dream of two things, throwing my phone in the garbage can and going to a beach somewhere and being left alone. That is refreshment to me. When I read Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus is saying, Michael, I'm better than those things. Run to me, in me, in the person and work of who I am is true refreshment. Verse 29, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. So think of a yoke as like a mantle or a burden to carry. Uh, Back in that day, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they were said to have given their students a heavy yoke. The uh, 613 laws of the Old Testament were known as a burdensome yoke. Why? Because you could never measure up to the standard that was being placed on you. Jesus is saying here in verse 29, he's saying, take my yoke. Think about what you take on as a yoke. What are all the other teachers that you like to run to? What are all the other things that you allow to influence your life? All the other burdens that you place on your shoulders that you want to bear that cross by yourself, those things that you want to severely control. Jesus is calling you this morning. He's saying, take those things off. Push those things aside and instead put me on. Learn from me. Jesus categorizes himself as lowly and humble in heart. The ESV says that he is gentle and lowly. Look at the contrast between the arrogant and the humble. You ever wonder what it would be like to serve an arrogant God who at the snap of a finger could just obliterate us because of our sin? No. Jesus himself says, I am humble I am lowly in heart, in heart meaning like in his being, in his inner soul, that's who Jesus Christ is. Philippians 2, 7, Jesus left the glories of heaven and he humbled himself by coming to the earth, taking on the form of a servant. He says, take my yoke upon me, you will find rest for your souls. There's that word rest again. A lot of things that we don't get here is 21st century Americans, rest. This word for rest means relief. Relief from soul-crushing burdens. Relief from the crippling anxiety that you carry. Relief from frustration when things don't go the way you thought they should go. Jesus Christ provides you refreshment and relief. I'm not sure there's one person in this room that wouldn't raise your hand and take those things right now if they were given to you. Jesus is saying how to get it. He's inviting you this morning. He's saying, come to me. Rest in me. Seek me. Learn from me. He finishes in verse 30 saying, because my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Christ does not call you to a burdensome existence. If all Christianity feels like is work and work and work, you're not doing it right. Christ doesn't call you to live a life of worry. He calls you to live a life of trust. He calls you to live a life of dependency and he calls you to live a life of rest, a life of acknowledgement that he is God, he has it under control, and it's okay if you don't. This morning, you've seen that you're left with two different choices on how to approach Jesus. Either you're going to run from him, or you're going to rest in him. Uh, Both of those things have eternal consequences. You run from him, you're a goat. You long for eternal judgment, but he's inviting you this morning, rest in me. Be a sheep. 
And understand that as a sheep, you get to fall under the care of a humble and lowly shepherd, not a bossy shepherd, not one that wants to tell you what to do, one who loves you, one who guides you, one who protects you, who feeds you, who cares for you, the shepherd that died on a cross in your place so you did not have to. And hey, as a bonus, what do you get? You get eternal life. So as we go through this week, not just this week, church, but this year, take his yoke upon you. What parts of your life do you need to take off and put him on? Uh, What things in your life right now are not honoring to him? What things in your life are you still trying to put your thumb on and control yourself and not give to him? Christ is calling you this morning. He's saying, take those things off. Put him on. Find refreshment in him. Find rest in him. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you for a passage like this. Uh, Lord, a passage that you make it abundantly clear to us uh, what you're calling us to. Um, Father, I pray that you are with the people in this room that are carrying very wearisome and heavy burdens. Um, Father, I, I say this almost every single week that we need to give all things to you. God, I pray Uh, As a lot of us as human beings, we try to clench our hands so tightly to everything. God, I pray that we can give you control. God, that we can understand that you're good, uh, that you're sovereign, sovereign, that you have providence over all the things here on this earth. And God, that we can simply give our lives to you and be a conduit of your grace. Um, Father, I pray for the people in here who are blind. Uh, the people who do not know you, the people in here who are running from you. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit allows them to see what they're doing is not on a good path. Uh, Father, I pray that your spirit would move in this place, place repentance on people's hearts in this room. God, for the Christian who wants to give 95% of their life to you, but not that 5%, God, I pray that you give us trust, that we, you give us faith that you're a good God. Uh, so God, I give these things to you this morning. Lord, I pray that you work in and through us as a church, uh, as a people of God. God, that you'd work through us individually in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, but corporately, Father, that we could be light in this area. Uh, So God, I just pray that we press closer to you, that we can leave here today knowing on our hearts, write it on our hearts, rest in you, rest in you, rest in you. So God, I give today to you. It's in your son's name I pray.